Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, that the book of Acts is still being written and you are using our lives. Oh, the stories that will fill heaven. Lord, as testimony after testimony is heralded of your faithfulness, your goodness, um, your fruit that you have borne and do bear. Lord, I pray that you would place on our hearts, Lord, the urgency of continuing on with you, of trusting in you, of letting you take the pen and write this story of our lives. Lord, you write an adventure story. You are constantly rescuing us. You are constantly bearing fruit in the most unusual and precious ways. And you are blessing us in specific and unique ways tailor-made to our personalities and everything you know about us. So Lord, I pray that we would leave this morning knowing that you are the God that loves us so much, that you are the God that rescues us, that bears fruit through us, and continues to bless. So Lord, speak into our hearts your message, your word, your heart, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Often the aftermath of a traumatic event is fear. I remember um, I was eight and a half months along with my second child, and I remembered my first labor. (laughs) That was 28 hours long, and I just remember looking at that, you know, growing womb, thinking, what have you done, Cheryl? And I really wanted another baby. I just didn't want the process. But there's that sense of after a traumatic event, like, Lord, I know we made it through that one, but I don't think I could do this again. That was pretty traumatic. And we're so worried it's going to happen again. And we're, we have this feeling of vulnerability, like, when's it going to jump out at me? When, it's, when is it going to happen? There's also the reaction of avoidance. Having survived one tragedy, there's added caution into your life. And you work at avoiding any encounter with danger. You start putting limitations on yourself. You won't drive the freeways. You won't um, go out at night. You're avoiding um, certain places in the public. And there's that avoidance that often is the aftermath. Or maybe... For some, it's the feeling that life is done and over. Okay, I made it through that. That's it. Now I just want to coast until I go to heaven. I deserve a break. This is my time. There used to be this commercial that was like, I think it was from Mounds Bars, you know, those dark chocolate coconut things that would say, you deserve a break. Nobody knows how hard it's been for you. And I remember I was like, yeah. You know, I mean bad commercial, bad. I mean, it just got me. But there is that feeling of just, that's it. You know, I just, I want me time. But that's not, that's not reflective of the life of Paul. He didn't have those feelings. He's just been through a major catastrophe. Not only was he out a storm for two weeks at sea, not only were they driven off course, not only was the sky, whether it be stars or sun, not visible. Not only did they suffer shipwreck, I mean, the whole ship was destroyed, but 
he had to make his way in frigid water to the island that they couldn't even identify at that point. And it's dark and it's cold and it's windy. But Paul would say later, about probably six years, seven years later, when he wrote to, Se- to Timothy and 2 Timothy, for, when he wrote to 2 Timothy, not the first Timothy, they were twins. <laughs> when he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also those who have loved his appearing. Paul, throughout his earthly sojourn, was always ready to be poured out as an offering to God. In Romans 12:1, he urged the Romans to present their own bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. And he said, this is, this is the reasonable thing to do. And this is exactly what Paul did. As long as he was on the earth, his life was a sacrifice to God. He didn't consider his own life dear, as we read in Acts 20, but he knew he had been bought by Jesus Christ with a great price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. So he kept fighting the good fight. What is the good fight? I think all of us have fought bad fights. You know, when you get in a fight with a telemarketer, that's not a good thing. (laughs) No, I don't want your product. Yes, you do. You need it. No, I want to hang up. You are so rude. You know, I... It's not a good fight. I got in a fight with Jehovah Witnesses at the door twice. Not once, twice. In fact, the second time I said, I have to ask you this. Do they only ask bitter people to be Jehovah Witnesses? I mean, I was like, I was in the flesh. Nothing worse than like trying to share Jesus in the flesh. I was just like, you know, "Ah, you came to my door. I didn't go to yours. You should show me some civility. Um, And it was in England, so it really wasn't good. That's the bad fight. Bad fight can be with your husband too. That's the bad fight. But there is a good fight. There is a good fight. And the good fight is against your flesh. That's a good fight, to fight against your flesh. Paul said, I daily beat my flesh down. I don't give in to my flesh. You know, my flesh is always going, Cheryl, protect yourself. Always. Cheryl, look out for you. And this is another thing my flesh says. Cheryl, what about you? You deserve a mounds bar. Always. So we have to make that fight against self-indulgence, but there's also the fight against self-righteousness. You're right. You know the right way to do everything, and everybody should follow your instructions. You know, isn't it true that we pretty much have a plan for everybody else's life? There are times that we think, like, God doesn't speak to you. He speaks to me for you. Let me tell you what God wants to do or the way he wants to do it. Because have you noticed that nobody does things your way? Nobody, not even the kids you train up. Nobody's interested in your way. And, you know, I, sorry, Nicole, but I remember one time I was talking to Nicole and there was a situation that arose and I said, Nicole, say this or that or this. And she's looking at me and I go, you know what? Ignore everything I said and you say exactly what the Lord told you to say. And she said, good, because I'm feeling a little better about what the Lord's told me. I'm like, well, you know, Cheryl's word, God's word. I agree, go with God's word. But there is that self-righteousness in me 
that I have to fight against. Yo, God says, Cheryl, I am speaking to them. I am working through them, but I'm going to do it differently through them than I do it through you. You know, I'm, I, I love to instruct Brian. It's probably good that he tunes me out because otherwise you'd just be hearing me every Sunday morning too. Because, you know, he'll say, oh, I'm doing this passage of scripture, that passage of scripture, oh, this and that and this and that. And he gets this nice little condescending smile like, like, and when you're over, I will go back to my study and finish writing what the Lord is telling me. But we do have to fight against self-righteousness. That is a venue of the devil to make you feel like you are right and you know the right way for everybody and everybody else is wrong or they're in the flesh and here's step one, step two, step three, which they either should have done or should do. We always get instructive letters. Secondly, we have to fight the good fight against the world, the love of the world, settling in, compromise, or listening to the magistrates that want to cripple the gospel. You know, in Philippians, when Paul went to Philippi, he would not be dissuaded, even if it meant prison from preaching the gospel. Peter and John would look at the Pharisees who were their spiritual overlords in the Judaic faith and say, whether we ought to obey God or men, you decide. We have to keep from compromising and fight against the influences of the world. Paul was always fighting against the Judaizers and the legalists who wanted to put Paul and the new believers and the Gentiles under the law so that the Holy Spirit could no longer aid them, but they would have to look to men to tell them what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong. Years ago, when we were going to England, um, this well-meaning woman came up to me, and she was American, but she said to me, "Um, I heard you're going to England. And I said, you know, yes, I am. She said, well, I will tell you everything you need to do and everything you shouldn't do. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I really appreciate the offer. That was a lie. But um, now that I think about it, (laughs) but at the time I was trying to be, you know, gracious. And I said, but you know, if I go over there and I'm following what you told me about fitting in, then I'll always be beholden to you and my dependency will be on you. But if I go over there with a dependency on the Holy Spirit teaching me and showing me what I'm supposed to do and not to do, then my dependency will always be on the Holy Spirit. And I feel like I'm already walking on water and I need to do this by the grace and power of the Lord. So thank you, but no thank you. I remember she came down to our first brunch that I did. And she told me, first of all, that nobody would show up at the brunch. I had this inspiration from the Lord, throw a brunch for the English women at our church. She said, well, nobody will show up. And then she said, what are you making? I said, I'm making blueberry muffins. And she goes, oh, they won't come for that. And I said, well, I'm also making an egg dish. Mm -mm -mm -mm." She said, you need to have mushy peas and roast beef. And I'm like, I don't do mushy peas. I don't even do peas of any kind. And she said, and I said, and I, you know, I really don't do roasts either. I said, I'm just going to do this and just see how it goes and what the Lord does. Because I'm really feeling God's putting this on my heart. 
So I, I did this. We just invited the women. We had 21 real women show up. For me, that was like a crowd. It was like, oh my goodness. Um, and they loved my blueberry muffins. And this woman hired me to make 100 blueberry muffins for a conference she was doing. It, you know, you just see that the Holy Spirit is our guide. And he does a superior job of guiding us. Jesus said he'll guide you into all truth. He will teach you all things. And he will remind you of all the things that I have said. And I found that dependency on the Holy Spirit, not on a a well-intended woman, but on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I tell you, he told me to make blueberry muffins and he helped me make them too. And he blessed them and they were so flavorful. But we have to fight against the world, even the well-meaning people. We've got to make sure that we're listening to the Lord. Finally, we've got to fight against the devil. Paul said that he had an angel of Satan that constantly buffeted him and tried to keep him from the ministry. There will be obstacles constantly to ministry that Satan will put up in our way. Satan will constantly whisper condemnation. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not educated enough. And the lies will go on and on. And we have to fight against the lies. You know, it's hard because every lie has a little bit of truth. I'm not good enough. I'm not educated enough. I don't have enough personality. I'm not smart enough. But it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ and him working through me. And he makes me sufficient for all things. So we have to fight against the devil. Paul was constantly dealing with spirits and unseen forces. Remember again when he was in Philippi and that girl was going around saying, listen to this man, you know, he's sent from Jesus Christ. And Paul being irritated turned around and rebuked the spirit in that girl and she was set free. But what happened? The magistrates came in, they arrested him, they beat him. Yet Paul in that prison was singing and praising the Lord. Paul said again in 2 Timothy that he finished the race or that he stayed on course, didn't run in the wrong lane, kept going, didn't stop, and did what God wanted him to do. Each of us has our own lane to run in. And that's the problem. I ran track for two weeks every year and quit. But when I was running track, one of the things they said is do not look at the other runners. Because the minute you look over at another lane, you're going to trip, you're going to fall behind. It was you keep your eye on the prize and your lane and what you're doing because we stand before God and not men. We have to listen to God. He didn't run in the wrong lane and he kept going. He kept going no matter what happened. He kept going. He didn't stop. One of the most tragic things to me is to hear about a pastor who does not finish well. It comes like a punch in the stomach when I hear about a pastor who, who doesn't keep the course, who doesn't keep loving Jesus, who, who goes after the flesh. Not only does it bring blasphemy to the name of Jesus, but those people out there, they don't know that Jesus is sufficient, that he's fulfilling And it it just literally, it hurts so much. But that's not Paul. Look at all the 
adversarial conditions that Paul kept running under. But it didn't, ma- it didn't matter if it rained or if it was snowing or if it was the wind was blowing hard or what the condition was, he kept running. Acts chapter 28 does not mark the end of Paul's ministry, though it is the aftermath of a huge upheaval. I believe this storm was probably the most tremendous thing that Paul had ever been through. He had been through floggings. He had been through whippings. He had been through imprisonments. He had spent a night and a day in the sea before. He had been under the peril of robbers. He had had insomnia. He had been hungry. He had been cold. But nothing like this long stretch of upheaval. This long stretch of being absolutely out of control. Yet by this time in Paul's life, he had traveled all over the known world. He had taken the gospel both to Asia and Europe. He had strengthened the church in Antioch of Syria in the word. He had been the one who was chosen and sent out with Barnabas on the first missionary endeavor. He had made disciples wherever he went, including Lydia and Titus and Timothy and Aristarchus and Gaius. He had established churches in the region of Galatia, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus. He had persevered through beatings, arrests, stoning, travel, sleeplessness, affliction, imprisonments, trials, shipwreck. But now probably... This, the most traumatic and extended time of adversity, a storm at sea, lasting weeks, winter time, cold and frigid, no sunshine, no stars at night, no direction, no bearings, all of the ship without hope, no food, surrounded by non-believers, which means probably lots of cursing and blame going on and tempers rising, and then shipwreck floating to shore in frigid water with the vestiges of a broken ship, tragedy, torrents, tumult, and trauma. Yet, Paul is undaunted. He's not stopped. He is trusting God's word above the word of man and above the storm. Paul has been guided by the word of the Lord, and he has found peace and assurance in God's word. Paul's life has been spared with the purposes of God in mind. God is not finished with Paul. You know, whenever we're going through a trial, isn't that the great lie of the devil? God is finished with you. This one's going to take you down. Do you ever have that? I do. I mean, I probably do it in every trial. The enemy comes and goes, this is it. You're going down now. Every trial. That's the lie of the enemy. This one's going to do you in. It's not true. God is not finished with Paul. He's not finished with you. There is ministry ahead, and Paul must appear in Rome by the will of God. Paul knows that God is absolute in his word. Something that we don't understand is the zeal of the Lord. Now, we get enthusiastic about things like chocolate. 
But you know how you get enthusiastic about certain things? Maybe um, a certain friend that you're going to see that you haven't seen in a long time. But there's certain things that we get enthusiastic about. And we know zeal. Or we get impassioned and we're going to make this happen. This is going to be great. That's how God is about his word. He is zealous to perform his word. Nothing can stop God from performing his word. We read that when Jesus was on the cross, he shouted out before, um, before he gave up his spirit, he shouted out, I thirst. And we're told that he said that in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled all of the scriptures. He was zealous. We're told when he cleaned out the temple that he said that the disciples looking on remembered the scripture about the zeal of the Lord in cleansing out the temple. God is resolute, determined, and zealous to perform his word. But it's not just in the general sense that God is going to come through on his word. God is zealous to perform the promises of his word to you. God is zealous to show you that this word is trustworthy and that it works. God wants you to know the veracity of his promises, the veracity of his word. God is going to continue to rescue Paul. This is not the last rescue, the shipwreck not the last rescue. God is going to continue to bear fruit through Paul's life, and God is going to continue to honor and bless his servant Paul. Now, we read that these are natives on the island of Malta. On the other side is where the port and the sailors usually came in, but this is the unsophisticated side. This is the side that is uncivilized. And we're told that they washed up on shore on the wrong side of the island. And we know this because it says that these natives showed unusual kindness to Paul and those on the ship. What does that mean? They weren't usually nice. It's unusual. It's different than how they usually reacted. We see that God is not through rescuing Paul. This is different. God is moving on these natives' hearts to act differently than they usually did. I love missionary biographies. And there's a missionary biography. um, I think it's um, McKay. But he and his wife went to the South Pacific. And they went onto an island where every other European had been murdered almost immediately. Um, didn't matter if they were ship captains and soldiers or other people who had come to trade, they had been murdered. But he and his wife felt called to go to this South Pacific island. They land on it, and immediately the the natives are there. They've got their spears all poised to run them through. And here's McKay with his wife. And his wife, they said, was very delicate. And they're walking between these two rows of natives with their spears just uh, poised and these grimaces on their faces. And they're walking towards this hut. And again, nobody else has ever survived these natives on this island. 
But Mrs. McKay hears a baby crying in the hut and forgetting where she was and the threat around her and just focusing on that baby's cry, she gasps and goes running into the hut and grabs the baby and picks it up and starts comforting the baby. And when the natives see this this white woman comforting and loving this little baby, they all put their spears down. And McKay and his wife became the first missionaries to these South Pacific islands, and God did a tremendous work. But again, unusual kindness, unusual rescue. God is not through rescuing Paul. It's an unexpected kindness, a kindness that's not afforded to everyone, especially when you consider that this ship that is crashed has been full of prisoners. These are usually the people you want to entertain. Sailors, merchants, and and soldiers. But yet these natives make a fire on the shore so that those coming out of the frigid winter waters can be warmed. We're told that the storm is still going on. It's still raining and the weather is cold. Paul begins to gather sticks for the little fire that's being built to keep everybody warm. And a viper fastens on his hand. That word fasten actually means dug into or bites. Now, every viper is poisonous. The word viper means a poisonous snake. And they've got these fangs that will go deep into um, the victim. And the poison is delivered through the fangs. So this serpent has attached itself. I mean, it's hanging to Paul's hand because of the fangs. And Paul just shakes this thing into the fire like... Now, vipers' bites are not only deadly, but they're extremely painful. I was reading articles on it. Don't ask me why, but I Googled vipers and I went to my encyclopedia on vipers. Sometimes when you're studying, you get stuck at the most unusual places. (laughs) And maybe it's because I have four grandsons. So I'm looking at vipers. But the bites result in incredible pain. The victims usually scream out in swelling, blood clotting, and certain death. Now, these natives are very familiar with these venomous creatures. No doubt they've dealt with them before. And they're looking at Paul, and and their reasoning is, oh my goodness, he was saved in the storm, but he must be a really bad guy because now, look, the gods are going to kill him by a viper. But when they see Paul shake off the snake and nothing happens to him, He does not swell. He does not scream out. He does not fall over. Then they change their mind and decide he's a god. You know, this is not my reaction to snakes. I will be honest with you. I absolutely hate snakes. Brian and I were walking in the Talbert Nature Center about a year ago. And we were having a really nice little walk. Actually, it was two years ago. Maybe three. But he put his time is relative when you're my age. He put his hand out all of a sudden like this. I thought, you know, that's really weird. He's just putting his hand out. I'm just, I am, I'm so talking away to him that I'm totally unaware of my environment. Just like, da, 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 da. you know, I've got him to myself. So I'm going to tell him everything beginning when I was two. And I'm just, da, 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 da. 
you know, and I'm having so much fun. And, you know, here's his hand. Actually, it was this way. His hand's out. And I'm walking into his hand like, what is it? And he points. Typical Brian doesn't say there's a snake. He just points. And I look down, and here's this huge snake just crawling across the path. And I throw up my arms. Now, I got this from Brian because I only remember running. I throw up my hands, and Brian said I begin to scream and wave my hands and sprint off in the opposite direction. So what does my precious husband do? He picks up the snake, holds it over his head. He's like, Cheryl, Cheryl. And I turn around. He goes, it's just a gopher snake. I screamed even louder because he's holding it. He said I was like, ah! And I, I literally, it was about two miles to my house. I sprinted the entire way. I even locked the door. Like, I'm locking the snake out, you know? He's not coming in here. It was so funny because the next day somebody said to me, do you run? I said, well, yesterday I was sprinting. (laughs) So convenient. But that's my reaction. But here's Paul. Just God's going to rescue me. He's not done with me. I must go to Rome by the will of the Lord. But this leads to something else. Because of this incident, he is invited into Publius's house probably because they thought there was something divine about him. So he's invited up to this estate where he's entertained for three days. And while there, he finds out that Publius's father has dysentery. In those days, dysentery was a death sentence. Germs um, that were communicable were killers. And what would happen is a person would be quarantined and you wouldn't go into them, you wouldn't talk to them. But But Paul goes right into this room, lays his hands on this alien father and prays for him. He's not worried about germs. He's not germophobic. He's not taking the rubbing alcohol going, just a second, let me pray. He is laying hands on him and he's praying and we're told that he was immediately healed. And when the word gets out to the natives, they bring in all the sick, all the ailing before Paul. So we see that God is not finished rescuing Paul. He has rescued him. He will rescue him. But God is also not done bearing fruit through Paul. Because in verse 9, we find that the rest of the island now seeks out Paul. And they want Paul to pray for them. And as they begin to see the Lord work, they are open to the gospel. And we're told that Paul is on this island for three months. We see that God uses a storm at sea, shipwreck, viper, Publius's father, illness and disease to spread the gospel to obscure place because God cares about these people who might never have had the occasion to hear the gospel otherwise. God is still going to bear fruit. Last week, um, I went to an all Spanish speaking book conference which is really interesting since mi español es muy pobre. I mean, that's about all I can say. And so Jasmine went with me to interpret and to tell me what was going on. So we're on our first flight, and towards the end of our first flight, Jasmine, who is never sick, begins to hold her stomach and go, I'm so sick, I'm so sick, only when we're landing. Now, I was sick at the beginning of the flight because we kept hitting uh, turbulence and the plane's just shaking, and we're in the back, always in the back, you know, where you get the shake up. 
and I'm kind of sick, but here we're about to land and she is so sick. And she's like, uh, goes back to the bathroom. Well, I get off the plane and I'm waiting. And everybody is off that plane. Even the elderly Indian couple is off the plane. But there's no sign of Jasmine. And pretty soon, here she comes in a wheelchair and she's holding her stomach going, Cheryl, I'm so sick, I'm so sick. And the guy says, you only have 15 minutes to get on the whole other side of the airport. So I'm gonna drive you over there on the tram. I've never ridden on one of those trams before through an airport. And he was honking at everybody, getting them out of our way. I mean, when you watch people move out of your way, because you know your driver's gonna run them over. And sure enough, I mean, our next gate, which we had only 15 minutes to get to, was probably a 45-minute walk away. And he just got us right there. We get off the tram, we thank him, and Jasmine looks at me and she goes, I'm fine now. I said, you're kidding me. And she's like, no, don't let him know, but I'm absolutely okay. And she looks at me, she goes, do you think the Lord allowed that? so we could get to our plane and make this flight? I'm like, yeah, but let's not tell him. (laughs) Or any of the people that we almost knocked over. Um, Getting here, it was like the most amazing thing. I mean, she was all right, she was laughing, she was like, (laughs) she's back to being Jasmine. And you know, I think, Lord, sometimes he allows those things into our life for his purposes. He allows shipwreck. He allows illness and sicknesses. He allows, you know, vipers. And these different materials into our lives to get his will accomplished, to get us to Rome, or in my case, to get us to Miami, to the Expolite Conference. He allows these things because God is not through bearing fruit in any of our lives. We're told by Jesus in John chapter 15 that God's will is that we would all bear much fruit and even more fruit and that the fruit that we bear for God would remain. That is the purpose of God. Now, Paul is not just bearing fruit on the island of Malta, but even when he reaches Rome, he gathers together all the leading Jews in Rome to the place where he is being held under guard and he communicates to them the cause for his arrest, the reason that he's there, the hope of Israel, that the Messiah has come, and he uses the promises of the kingdom of God to explain, to solemnly testify about Jesus. He is able to expound from the law of Moses and the prophets, and we're told that he speaks from morning until evening. Just one scripture after another that Jesus Christ has fulfilled. And we're told that some are persuaded and some reject. And yet Paul is still not moved by the rejection. He takes courage from the scripture that this is the way it's going to be when you bear fruit. It's verification of what God has said in his word because God's word is absolute and cannot fail. In Isaiah, God had said, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. 
God is saying, if they would only turn, I would be so faithful to my promise and I would heal them. In John chapter four, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he said, if you recognize the one who is speaking to you and the gift that he has, you would ask him and he would give you the living water. But there is a need to recognize who Jesus is and the gift that he is offering. And then God has promised to those who recognize and who receive this living torrential gift of the living water. That's what he's promised, that healing water. Paul will take the gospel to the Gentiles at this point, And he says, and they will hear it. In other words, just because some of these Jews have rejected does not mean God's finished bearing fruit through Paul. Now the fruit will be born through the Gentiles. He will appear before Caesar. In Philippians 1, 12 through 18, Paul talks a little bit about some of the fruit that came. He said that the gospel was furthered, that the whole palace guard recognized the cause of Paul's imprisonment, that it was because of the Messiah, that brethren were emboldened to preach the gospel, and that Christ was preached in unexpected places. In 2 Timothy 2, 9, Paul said, though I am chained, the gospel is not chained. We're also told that Paul wrote epistles, letters from prison. He wrote Ephesians to the, to the Ephesians, speaking of the riches that were theirs in Christ Jesus. To the Philippians, he wrote the epistle of joy. To the Colossians, he wrote the epistle of sound doctrine and liberty in Christ. To Philemon, he wrote a personal letter of grace, new identity, and relationship through the gospel. In fact, in Philemon, he said, this is from Paul the aged. And I think that's important because Paul is at an older age. He's been ministering for some 40 years by this time. And yet God is not through bearing fruit through him. This time of imprisonment was most scholars, historians say that it was between 60 and 62 AD. In 62 to 64 AD, he was freed and he traveled to Spain. Um, it's believed that he actually went and um, saw some of the other churches again. In 63 AD, Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus from Macedonia or Nicopolis. In 64 to 65 AD, Paul is rearrested and imprisoned and he writes 2 Timothy. And in 65 AD, he is beheaded and martyred in Rome. But Paul maintained his enthusiasm and passion for Jesus Christ and God continued to bear fruit through this apostle. Finally, God continued to bless his servant, Paul. He was not through blessing Paul. Not only did he rescue him, not only did he continue to bear fruit, but he blessed him. He blessed him on Malta because God heard and answered Paul's prayers on Malta. Not only the healing of Publius's father or the healing of the natives, but he was treated with hospitality. He was invited to a leading citizen's estate and stayed there for three days. The citizens there supplied him with everything he needed for his voyage to Rome. But he's blessed on his journey to Rome by foot. When he lands, we hear that brethren traveled some 43 to 50 miles just to encourage him 
In Puteoli, there he meets brethren. And he must have been encouraged that the gospel had reached there. He stays with them for seven days before going on. He meets more brethren at the Appy Forum and Three Inns. It said that they sought out the apostle. There is something wonderful about being appreciated and loved. When you meet someone, they go, I just love you. You're like, you're kidding. That is so nice. You know, I'll have people like, I'll run into somebody at Target, one of my favorite places, and they'll go, I don't want to interrupt you. I know you're shopping. You're like, no, 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 you're a friend. You're a nice person. You're smiling. Please stay here. Be my friend. Let's shop together. Let's go to the toy department. It's really fun. There's just, it's so wonderful to meet other Christians. It's so wonderful to know we're part of an extended family. I was in Costco this one day, and I hear this person going, that's Cheryl. That's Cheryl. That's her right there. Yeah. And you hear the other person go, who's Cheryl? You don't know who Cheryl is? No. It's Chuck's daughter. Chucko. Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith? Yeah. He's here? No, his daughter. (laughs) And it's like, I can't hear you. You know, I just turn around and I'm like, hi. They're like, hi. And they run away from me. (laughs) I'm not a viper. I do not bite and I do not fasten myself to people. And if I do, just throw me into the fire. But you know, I'm so excited about fellowship. I love it. You know, here I am at this conference, and I don't know any of these people but Jasmine, and they all speak Spanish, and I speak English, kind of. And I took Latin in high school, a lot of good that does me. Hick, hake, hoke. Useless, useless, useless. So I'm there. And this, this girl, Caroline, comes up to me. She goes, you don't know me, but my brother-in-law is Fausto Fluker. And I'm like, no way. I'm like totally impressed. And she's like, he's a pastor, um, a Calvary pastor. I'm like so excited. And she's like, um, I know who you are. And I go to Calvary and, you know, we're from Chino and we go to Jack Hibbs Church. And I'm like, oh, so neat. And she kept seeking me out at the whole conference to find out how I was doing. And I had to do this book signing thing. Of course, they were asking for books. They were all free. So I was signing, you know, these books. And she comes and she says, are you all right? I'm going to get you a coffee. And she goes and she gets me a coffee. That's my language of love. And she comes back to me. And, you know, it was like I had a friend. And I told her before I left, I said, you are now my forever friend. That's not a curse. That's a blessing. It's going to be good. It, it was just so sweet. But there's something about fellowship. As, Paul, as David says in Psalm 133, 1, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. In Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, I long to see you that we might encourage one another by our mutual faith. Oh, there's something so wonderful about fellowship or running into another Christian to know you're not alone. That even in Costco, God has his people. (laughs) Paul is encouraged, and we're told that he thanks the Lord because now he's seen the effects of the gospel. These men are saved, these men are dedicated, these men are devoted, these men are loving. 
Paul is also blessed in Rome. He's not treated like the rest of the prisoners. Verse 16, there is a distinction made. Paul is under house arrest with just one guard, and he's allowed to dwell with by himself. He's able to meet at his house and have meetings. And here's another blessing. The Jews in Rome have not heard about him. They're like, we, we haven't heard anything bad about you. Isn't that so great? God did not allow that slander to precede Paul in Rome. They hadn't heard. Maybe the Jews in, in Jerusalem thought he died because of the terrible storm and knew he had been sent off by sea, so they didn't bother. Maybe they hadn't heard because nobody knew about them on the wrong side of Malta, and word had not reached the Jews in Jerusalem, so they didn't feel compelled to talk and slander Paul because they, God had taken him off the radar for a time to bless him and use him. So Paul is absolutely blessed because now there's no prejudice. He's able just to give them the gospel. He was blessed because these people had a curiosity. It said, we've been wanting to hear about this sect. And all we know is that it's talked about, but we wanted to hear from somebody about this sect. Oh, that God would arouse a curiosity. You know, sometimes God is using the very agencies that we think are a curse. I know people that got saved through the Da Vinci Code. Yes. I know a woman who got saved because she was asked to be Mary Magdalene in a London production of Jesus Christ Superstar. And she wanted to check it out with the Bible and see if it was right or not. And she realized that it, well, it wasn't right, but she learned the right way through the gospel. You see, God creates this curiosity. He, he arouses things even when the gospel is talked against. God is creating a thirst. So he's blessing. He is blessing. Paul's ministry is blessed. Some of the Jews are persuaded. Gentiles will hear the gospel. He dwells two years in a, in a rented house, not a risen one, but a rented one, not in prison. He's able to receive all who come to him and minister to them. He's able to preach the kingdom of God. He's able to teach the things concerning the Lord Jesus. There's no fear, but absolute confidence. And we're told that there is no hindrance, no one forbidding him. And that's the Greek word, akaludos, which means nothing in the way. Isn't that amazing? Here he is chained, but nothing's in the way. God is blessing. No doubt, as we've been studying Acts this year, you've had maybe some upheavals in your life. Maybe you've had places in your life where you feel arrested or stopped or chained. You've had limitations placed upon you. You've been kept from doing the things that you wanted to do or felt like the Lord was calling you to do. Maybe some of your freedoms have been removed either by illness or uh, by husbands or by other things. Maybe there have been accusations against you, slanderous statements. Maybe you've been pursued. You have angry people. You've been talked against. Maybe you've suffered disappointments. Things that you anticipated turned out differently than you had hoped, expected, or wanted. Maybe you weren't able to go to a certain place or move as expected. Maybe relationships were lost. Maybe there were unexpected trials 
that came into your life. Maybe there were storms that drove you off course, a total loss of control over the circumstances in your life. Interestingly enough, yesterday I cleaned out, I think it was 25 drawers in my house. And a friend of mine called me up and she said, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine, but I'm on a mission. I'm cleaning out drawers in my house. I filled three hefty bags of stuff to get rid of and three trash bags. I can't believe the junk that I've had. So I didn't even touch Brian's, these are just mine. And my friend said, do you know, um, it was Vicki, she said, do you know what another friend of mine would say? And I, I said, what? She said that you've lost control of your life and you're trying to get that control. I said, well, your friend might be right. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> that might be a reason I'm doing this because my kids just told me they're moving back in with me. And I'm like, I can't live like this. <laughs> I gotta clean. So I'm cleaning out, madly cleaning out all these drawers and trying to organize my life. I haven't even touched the bookshelves. That's another story. Because we're at this place with the bookshelves. You know, you've got the books, and then we've got things stuck on top of them, you know? That's for another day when I feel out of control. But maybe you feel a total loss of control over the circumstances in your life, and you've been cleaning out drawers too. Or maybe you've had a shipwreck. There are things that have been destroyed. Or maybe you've just barely made it through this year, rescued. I don't know all that you have weathered this year as we've been studying Acts, but this I know, that God has rescued you and he will continue to rescue you. In 2 Corinthians 1.10, God says that God has rescued us, is rescuing us, and will rescue us. He is absolutely committed to rescuing us. That's why he is Yahshua, or God is salvation. It's not just salvation from hell. It's not just salvation from sin. But every day, Jesus is rescuing us in a myriad of ways. He is our Savior who is constantly rescuing us. He is our deliverer, and we are told that he is mighty to save but God will also continue to bear fruit in your life as you stay attached to the vine, which is Jesus. Because again, it is the Father's will that you will bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, and that fruit will remain. In Colossians 1.10, Paul prays for the Colossians that they might be fruitful in every good work. In other words, that God will bless everything that you put your hand to. And then one of my favorite scriptures, especially as I'm getting older and older and older, Psalm 92, 14, it says that they will still be bearing fruit in old age. Amen? That was from everybody over 50. God will continue to bless your life. Not only rescue, not only bear fruit, but God is a blessing God. In Deuteronomy, we have just all the blessings in chapter 24 that God intends for his people. One blessing after another. In Jeremiah chapter 5, God says, I intended all sorts of blessings for you, but your sins have kept you from all the good things that I want. God wants to bless your life. I love how God tailors his blessings to our likes and dislikes. He 
knows what nobody else knows about us. He speaks our language of love. He knows. Brian is beginning to learn my language of love. When he does the dishes, I feel like I am so loved. The other night we left for church on Wednesday night and I had done most of the dishes and I looked at him and I said, you did your dishes. And he goes, uh, they're actually soaking in the sink. You just can't see them from here. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so when we were walking in the door after we got home from church, he goes, I'm going to go do my dishes. I was like, oh, you love me. I just, God knows. He knows. He knows the things that, you know, some of us get excited about, like sales in stores, cards with favorite scriptures, apples and cheese, coffee. God promises to bless us in all our ways. And we see with Paul that he was blessed in all his ways on travels, on cruises, whether he was stranded, imprisoned, or under guard. God is a God who blesses. I'm sorry, that's Deuteronomy chapter 28. I don't know what 24 is, but it will be interesting if you go there. No matter what you've gone through or you're going through, your story is not over. Many predicted, many told us, that when and if Chuck Smith died, that Calvary and the whole movement would crash and burn. And that would have been true if Calvary Chapel was built on a man. That would have been true if Calvary Chapel was built on a personality. It would have been true if Calvary Chapel was a business and my father was a CEO. They would have been right. But if this is the church of Jesus Christ, and if it is built on the solid rock that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah who has come into the world, who is the Savior, our Rescuer, who is the God who bears fruit if we stay attached to him, who is the God who blesses, then Calvary Chapel will stand. And it will resist every assault of the devil because it is the dwelling place of Jesus Christ. The story of the Spirit of God working in the lives of men and women is still being written. It's part of the never-ending story. I'm going to end with this, but years ago, um, my son Char was hyperactive. And he was really, like, I wanted to get, like, a t-shirt for him that said, um, please forgive me, my mother's not finished with me yet. Because he just, I mean, he broke, like, four windows. I mean, I remember, like, being in my bedroom, and he'd gone into my bathroom, and I heard, hi-ya, and then, bam, crackle, crackle, crackle. And I was like, Char, what happened? He goes, I nothing. I'm like, no, something happened. What's going on in there? He goes, I'm like, let me in. I don't want to. Why? Because I'll be in trouble. Just open the door. And he had karate kicked our shower door. And it had broken. That was just one window. Another time he killed a fly. And that did. Another time he shot a BB through. Another time he had a, um, a golf club. And he was hitting the bark in the backyard and broke our picture window. I mean, windows was kind of his thing. But I remember just kind of, he was eight years old, and I was just at the end of my tether. I had had um, Kelsey and Braden by then, and I've got a baby, and I've got a two-year-old, and I've got this hyperactive boy who, no matter when I went to pick him up at school, he had detention. Always had detention. It didn't help that the Lord gave him an ex-Marine as one of his teachers. 
But I, you know, I was just like, Lord, it's just so difficult, this little boy. And I went to sleep that night and I had this dream and I was in heaven and they lit down this huge movie screen just, just from one edge of heaven to the other side and they put a tree on it and all of heaven began to see the glory of a tree. We understood all the mystery and glory of a tree, how the leaves, you know, we understood all those things that we didn't get in science class you know, about chlorophyll and photosynthesis. It was just amazing. And then it began to show one tree after another. And all of heaven was just praising God and clapping and just shouting praise to God. You're magnificent. You created a tree. And then it showed a waterfall. And we all begin to praise God for water and the wonder of water. And it was one thing after another. And all of a sudden, it was Charlo on screen. He was Charlo then. Now he's the child formerly known as Charlo. He's Char. But <laughs> when you mature, you drop lows. And so he was just on the screen. Now, the year before, we had gone to Israel, and Char had photobombed everybody's picture. He had just gone. You could see Char in everybody's picture, like in a corner. They're like, I've got a lot of pictures of your son. I'm like, yes, you know, because that's him. And this is before I, there was even the term photobombing. He could do it. He was always advanced for his age. And so there he is. And in my dream, I'm like, oh, no, he's photobombing heaven. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed for him. I like, was like, oh, no. You know, all of heaven's going to know what a failure I am as a mother. I can't control this child. It's just too hard. And all of a sudden, all of heaven began to cheer and shout and go, Lord, you created the char. And I'm like, what? And they're clapping, and it's just getting uproarious as everyone is clapping for my son and saying, glory to God, look at the hair, look at his eyelashes, look at his eyes, look at his nose, his ears, look at that energy, look at that attraction to glass. They were just like praising the Lord for my son. And I was looking around going, what, what? And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, all of heaven rejoices over your son. Do you know that your picture is going to go up on that screen? All of us will be on that screen in heaven. And you know what heaven's going to do? It's going to break out in applause because of the glory of God working through you. Your story is not over. It is just in the middle of the best chapters. There is more to come because our God rescues, our God bears fruit through us, and our God saves and the half has not been told this side of heaven. The story continues. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Oh, Lord, as the saying goes, God is not finished with me. Lord, we thank you that you are not finished with any of us. You have not finished rescuing us. You have not finished using us to bear fruit. You have not finished blessing us. 
Lord, you love your servants. You love your daughters and you want to work in their lives. Lord, speak into them. Let them know that this is just the beginning of great things that you have for them. Inspire them, Lord, to give you the pen and let you continue to write their story. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.